At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. And today is a family day. So kids, you got some notes, you got some crayons. I hope you'll follow along. And parents, you can maybe prompt them with a few of the fill-ins that are there. Uh, They can draw a picture on the back. They can do all kinds of different things. I'll kind of prompt them along the way as we work through this amazing scripture today. I think all of us ask some of the same questions throughout our lives And I think this is one of the biggest questions. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Not just am I going to make it through the service today, or if you're a student still have a couple weeks of school, am I going to make it through exams, but am I going to make it through this season, through this storm, through what we just sang about? Or in the end, am I going to be what the scripture refers to as an overcomer? Am I going to overcome? Last week, Pastor Chris started off our new series in Revelation. We've entitled this series, All Things New, and we're looking at the final four chapters of the Word of God. So as we come into this letter, let's realize this morning, I'm going to actually spend quite a bit of time helping us understand what it is that the Apostle John has given us. It is a masterpiece. It is unbelievable how he wrote this through the power of the Spirit and what it communicates to not only the hope of our hearts, but also to the application in our lives. I heard the story of a group of seminary students who were playing basketball in a gym, and they noticed a janitor that was sitting in the corner of the gym reading a book and waiting for them to finish up. And so when they finished their game, they walked over to him and said, what are you reading? And he says, the Bible. And they said, oh, really? What book? And he said, Revelation. And they just started to shake their heads. And they started to look down and say, oh man, we have to figure out how to help this poor soul out. So they said, do you understand what you're reading? Because we really don't. He said, yes, I understand it just fine. They were shocked. They said, really? He said, yes, it's simple. Jesus is going to win. That's the end. And the truth is, that's my statement this morning. Jesus is going to win. We could actually kind of pack up and go. (laughs) I'm going to give you more, but that really is the core of this letter. Is it possible to understand the book of Revelation? Yes, it is. A professor reminded me once, God gave us Revelation not to tickle our fancy, but to strengthen our hearts. Does anyone under 40 even know what tickle your fancy means? It means understanding revelation is not a hobby. It's not like a jigsaw puzzle. It's not a Sudoku puzzle. It's not a secret message that you need a decoder ring for. If you start by asking then questions like, what does it mean that the beast's feet are like a bear in chapter 13? You're missing the forest for a tree. Have you ever heard of the word? I'll give you a fancy seminary word. It's called hermeneutics. I spent a lot of time in seminary, spent a lot of our church's money on seminary and mine. 
So I might as well give you these words every once in a while. Hermeneutics. It's a word that, that means simply the study of how we interpret the Bible. So it's the study of how we understand what the Bible is saying. That study is called hermeneutics. And so many people get trapped when they come to this specific letter, the last letter of God's word. They get all caught up in what I'll call headline hermeneutics. They interpret the Bible based on the headlines. It's a bad idea. Turn to your neighbor this morning and just say, bad idea. Kids, tell your parents, bad idea. It's not the way you want to interpret the Bible. The purpose is not to help us put all of our current events into a nice little chart so that we can feel like we have all of God's redemptive timeline perfectly worked out. The scripture tells us that no one knows the exact timing of God's plans. So if you go into a Bible study or a class and somebody's like, I've got it, here's my charts, here's all my lists, and here's how it's going to go, and here's the timing of it all, say, I don't think you're a Bible expert. Because scripture tells us plainly, no one knows the exact timing of God's plan. So yes, we can all agree. We are getting closer to Jesus' return. Praise be to God. That is true. We are getting closer to Jesus' return. I can say with 100% certainty that we're getting closer because today is May 28th, 2023, and yesterday was May 27th, 2023. We're getting closer. The purpose of this letter is to help us overcome. It's to help us finish the race in faithfulness to the gospel, which is so much more important than charts of events. So here's another secret to understand this particular book, and it's not meant to be a secret at all. You don't need an expert understanding of world events and the news to interpret Revelation. Here's what you need. All that you need is a commitment, a deep commitment to the Old Testament. That's it. Of the 404 verses in this book, write this down if you're taking notes, kids or adults, 404 verses are in this letter. 278 of them are referring to Old Testament scriptures. The whole letter is basically a retelling of prophetic scriptures from the Old Testament. John, the apostle who writes this letter, he cites over 500 Old Testament passages. So let me give you some examples because all of this will help us understand our text when we finally get there this morning. So listen to the scripture describing the attacks of Satan, God's enemy, and his spiritual armies on humanity. This is found in Revelation chapter 9 verse 7. It says, In appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces and their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Now all kinds of people say that John's vision of locusts with human faces and lion's teeth and tails like scorpions and especially this phrase, wings uh, the sound of their wings was like the noise of many chariots. They say that when he saw this vision, that's John in the first century trying to describe current military equipment like helicopters. I would like to better say that John just knows the Old Testament. 
Because listen to the words of the prophet Joel, which came hundreds of years before, as he talked about invading armies of the enemy. Joel chapter one, verse four, another prophetic passage says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. For a, a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And it has the fangs of a lioness. Or Joel chapter two, verse four. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. John uses nearly identical language. So Revelation, it's what's called apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We find it in the Old Testament and the New. So to read it correctly means we must appreciate its symbolism and the fact that it's an image-driven story. That's ultimately what it is, an image-driven story. It's a picture book. It's not a book of brain teasers. So we should not read it that way. Revelation literally means even to pull the lid off of something, to shine the light on something, to illuminate. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing. It is not a concealing or a hiding or a masking or a veiling. It would have been fully understood by John's readers. So God wants us to see what was hidden and is now revealed. And do you know what was finally revealed in John's life that God wants us to see? It's the answer. It's the perfect church answer. You hear this in Sunday school, your whole life growing up, if you grew up within the church, what's the answer? Oh, come on, church family. Jesus. It's just the Jesus answer. What does John want us to see when we come to this letter? He wants us to see Jesus for who Jesus is for who he really is and what he is like and what he is going to do. And what we read today is the climactic moment where Jesus defeats God's enemies. Because in fact, Jesus will defeat God's enemies. One of the clearest ways to understand Revelation is by looking at one of its most important themes. And it's a theme that we deal with every single moment of this life in a broken world. It's this idea of spiritual warfare. And we need to see this picture if we're going to understand Revelation 19 and what it means for our lives today. I love how Professor Vern Poitras lays it out in a book called The Returning King. He says, Satan and his evil forces against God and against God's angels and against God's people, uh, they, they are in this battle. They're locked in this battle until they are ultimately defeated by Jesus. So listen to the words of Revelation chapter 12. It's speaking of Satan, and in the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as the dragon. It's using imagery to describe these spiritual realities. It says, and he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, and with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. That's a crazy vision. It's not so crazy when we read about the dragon in chapter 12, though. The dragon and the beast, they are terrifying monsters in this letter. I remember reading it as a child, being scared to death of these two. They both have seven heads. 
They're both described as having 10 horns. The dragon has crowns on his heads. The beast has crowns on his thorns, on his horns. So, so what's going on? It's actually quite simple. The, the beast is the image of the dragon. The dragon standing on the shore of the sea is like the spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter one, verse two. And then there is this creation of the beast made in the image of the dragon. Does this sound at all familiar? The dragon is a picture of Satan and he imitates God's creation of man in Genesis 1.27. But his creation, it's all a counterfeit. It's all a counterfeit. He's always been after God's reign and God's rule and now he's trying to mimic God's way. But he is much more like us than he is like God. And so he can't create as God does, so he counterfeits. Satan counterfeits God the Father by producing a counterfeit son. And the counterfeit son in the book of Revelation is called the beast or the Antichrist. Satan's desire is to reign and rule, so he sends his counterfeit son to carry out his plan, like the Father sent Jesus to carry out his plan. Now that's two members of the Trinity. What about the third? What of the Holy Spirit? Is there a counterfeit Holy Spirit? Yes, there is. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, it talks about a second beast coming up out of the earth. John calls this beast the false prophet. The false prophet does miraculous signs to convince people in the world to worship the beast. The Holy Spirit, throughout the book of Acts, empowered disciples to do miraculous signs to draw people to worship the Christ. So the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. The false prophet deceives. What do we see here? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are at war against the counterfeit Trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The parallels are everywhere. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, that is the battle, that is the conflict that is taking place. The Trinity versus the counterfeit Trinity that has deceived the world. The parallels are everywhere. The beast experiences, for example, a counterfeit resurrection in chapter 13. Revelation 13.3 says, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. He doesn't actually die, but he had a wound that was bad enough to where people thought it should have killed him. And so his recovery was so remarkable that just like Jesus' resurrection is the central event that draws people to follow him, the counterfeit miracle draws people to follow the beast. The beast receives worship in chapter 13, verse four. It says, and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. Jesus received worship in Revelation chapter five. Now the beast receives worship here in chapter 13. And this of course should sound familiar that the father gave his authority to the son. Satan now gives his authority to the beast, to the antichrist. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against him? What are those words? We have to know our Old Testament. It's all deception. It's all a counterfeit. It's what the world loves to do with our minds, with our hearts. 
when God's people were rescued from Egypt by God's war against the Egyptians through the plagues, what did they sing when they realized uh, all that God had done for them and they experienced their freedom? Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So in chapter 13, the beast also has a seal put on the right hand or the forehead of his followers. It's a counterfeit. Jesus seals his followers with the name, with his name on their foreheads in chapter 14. On the last day, people from all the nations, it says in Revelation chapter five, will worship the Christ. It says, and they sang a new song, verse nine, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What does the counterfeit do? Revelation thirteen seven. Also it, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. The Trinity versus the counterfeit Trinity. This is the story that has been unraveling and moving forward since the creation of humanity since certainly the fall of humanity. Who will win? That's what this book's about. Who will win? The Christ and the beast finally do battle in chapter 19. That's where we find it today. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And who wins will ultimately help you answer the question, am I gonna make it? And all of that depends on who you align yourself with. There's really just one application to this text this morning. I'll get to it at the very end, but it's not hard to come by. Who will win? Will I overcome? Well, here's what the apostle John saw. And I'm gonna read the whole text, the whole scripture, because I think it's best read that way. So just take in the vision that John saw In chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's one of your fill-ins. You want to put that in there, kids? King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their rulers and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. What do we do with it? Will you make it? Will you overcome? Well, it depends who you are in this story. If Christ is your king, the first thing I want you to see is to see the victorious king. The heavens opened and we see a picture of this warrior king coming from heaven, Jesus riding on a white horse. Now in the Roman culture, emperors and generals, they rode on white horses as a symbol of their victory and triumph. Maybe you remember the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe many years ago. It's one of my favorite movies. And in the opening scene of that particular movie, uh, Marcus Aurelius, who is the Caesar in, in the film of the Roman Empire, he, his army was closing out a 12-year campaign against the barbarians in Germania. And as they were showing the scene, it's like the Roman army, the, the greatest force the world had ever seen, is overwhelming this small band of barbarians. And the war was over. All the battles had basically been won. This is just cleaning up the scraps, basically. And the, 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 the camera pans over to the Caesar, to Marcus Aurelius. And what do you see? You see the image of the Caesar on a white horse saying, we've won. We're triumphant. There's still a few things happening, but we've won. Now, the Roman Empire, it waged war against Christians when this letter was written. This letter was written right around 90 to 95 AD. Well, in 64 AD, Emperor Nero started a persecution against Christians that lasted for 250 years. 250 years, and that was the context of the birth of the church. And Christians were, uh, if you were wealthy or a Roman citizen, you were simply beheaded. Why? Because that was a quick death. It was something that didn't require a ton of pain. It was over very quickly. And so if you had money or were part of the empire prior to this confession of Christ as Savior and Lord, then you were simply beheaded. For others, without those titles, without those means, they were crucified. They were burned. They were fed to lions and leopards. Set against the power of Rome, think about it. Who were these people in these small churches? This is the greatest army the world has ever seen. And they are coming after you. This letter is written 25 years after the persecution starts. And you're a follower of Jesus. You're just wondering, am I going to make it? Are my kids going to make it? Will I even have a legacy? Will I see adulthood? Will I even be able to have a job or get married or start a family? What's going to happen to me? Because, because the greatest force the world's ever seen, they're after us. What hope do we have this small, seemingly insignificant band of disciples in these small churches scattered throughout the empire? And they're thinking, what hope do we have is there any possibility of any kind of victory? 
So John, in the midst of that context, something that we don't fully grasp, certainly within our context today and our cultural experience, he is giving the church a vision of the triumphant king who is returning to the earth, who has already secured our victory. Not just over Rome, but over every form of evil for all time. He's not a counterfeit king, this rider of the white horse, the Christ. He is the rightful king who is faithful and true. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't fail. He doesn't lead out of self-interest. He doesn't lead unjustly. He doesn't lose. And he comes in righteousness to judge and make war. Now look at the picture John paints in contrast to the beast. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. It means that only Jesus can see and judge the human heart that others cannot see because only Jesus is God. And on his head are many diadems. It means that only Jesus has absolute authority, absolute sovereignty, absolute dominion. He has a name written that no one else knows but himself. That means that only Jesus is all-knowing because only Jesus is divine. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Only Jesus will shed the blood of his enemies after he had already shed his own blood and gained victory over sin and death. John again is pulling from Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah the prophet who wrote hundreds of years before these events took place. He said this, I'm just going to read Isaiah 63 starting at verse 2. It says, why, are, why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. This is talking about the Lord's vengeance against his enemies. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Again, John's just pulling from the Old Testament these images of what God will ultimately do to overcome and destroy evil. He's called the word of God, just like John when he opened his gospel letter. Only Jesus is the living, incarnate word of God in the flesh. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Only Jesus carries out God's judgment on the earth. And this one deserves a little extra time. Remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? He'd left the city of Jerusalem, went down through the Kidron Valley, went up the other side, was on the Mount of Olives, and this battalion of soldiers came towards him, the soldiers of the high priest. And he says to them, who are you looking for? And John, the same author of this letter, uh, records the story where Jesus says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus, simply by speaking, says, I am he. And do you remember what happened when he said those words? The soldiers fall down to the ground. There's no swords. There's no weaponry. There's no physical violence. His disciples, he didn't send them in there to attack. He simply says, I am he. And because he's creator God, sovereign over all things, the power of the words coming from his mouth causes them to simply fall down. Jesus Christ, 
His words are powerful. His words create. His words carry authority. His words are given to us in the word of God. The same sword of the spirit is the word of God that we are called to take up and stand against the schemes of the devil. This is the only weapon that is mentioned in all of the armor of God for the Christian. In Ephesians chapter 6, Think about how Jesus defeats the devil and temptation in the wilderness. It's through the word of God. And so what's the simple application here? We have just one thing. You have one thing that consistently overcomes temptation and the devil time and time and time and time again. And it's not self-will. It is the word of God. That's what we have. Maybe you want a different weapon, but that's the only one you need. Maybe you've tried different weapons, but this is the only one with power. And so we meditate upon the word. We memorize the word. We we obey the word in order to overcome our enemy. It says he will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. Again, that allusion right back to Isaiah the prophet. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's almost identical language means only Jesus holds the right to carry out God's mission of wrath. Only Jesus will carry out this mission of judgment against sin and evil. On his robe and his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Only Jesus is King. Only Jesus is Lord. There is no counterfeit. That's the point. When you close your eyes... And perhaps you should even do that this morning. If you close your eyes, if we were all to close our eyes in this room this morning and just think up an image of Jesus, what's that look like? What's the picture you receive? What's the picture that you paint? My hunch is that the picture you see is not usually the image of the warrior king that we find right here in Revelation 19. Jesus is gentle but not here. Jesus is full of grace, but not here. Jesus is patient and slow to anger, but not here. Jesus is always love, but here his love expresses itself as justice. The first time Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through his death. The second time he comes, he will come to condemn the false trinity and all those who follow it. In order for the world to be made new, all evil must be destroyed. That's what we find here. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this picture of Jesus is traumatizing. And it should be. It is traumatizing. Why? Because it's a picture of justice and judgment for every soul that does not overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. It is judgment and justice for all who have been deceived. Pastor Jim Dahlke from our Lake Orion campus called this message the return of the king. And of course, everybody thinks of the movie based on J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy of books. Tolkien was a follower of Jesus who lived through World War II, and his books were full of, um, they were full of subtle allegory that, follow, uh, that follows many of the themes of Scripture. And to be honest, I'm a total Turk, uh, Tolkien nerd, like totally was. 
Still kind of am. I, he, he led C.S. Lewis to faith, and C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and so I kind of got into Tolkien. And if you've ever seen the second movie of the original trilogy, The Two Towers, you get an idea of Revelation 19. I'm pretty convinced that Tolkien wrote these scenes based upon Revelation 19. And if you know the story, um, at, the, at the beginning of this movie, there's this wizard named Gandalf. And uh, by the way, as like an aside, these came out like in the early 2000s. And uh, the truth is like, this is back when you couldn't like reserve your seat in a movie theater. You had to go and wait in line. And so I was one of those guys. I read all these books and in the books, in the back of the book, there was a map and you could unfold the map. It got like this big and I'd look at the map and look at Middle Earth and look at all where the lands were and the mountains were and the stuff is happening. And then I'd go back to the chapter I was on and I was on and I'd keep reading and I'd go back and forth. And then finally the movies are coming out and I'm just so stoked. I'm so excited. I'm showing up to the movie theater. No joke, because this is what you did a couple hours early. And you'd stand in line. If you showed up a couple hours early, you're still like way in the back of the line, but you're standing next to people dressed up as elves and dwarfs. And like they've got swords and they've got axes. And, and back then, like you could actually go into a movie theater with that kind of stuff. And so, so like you're in line with all, it's like Halloween, but it's not Halloween. And so you're there and you're excited and you go in and you watch the two towers from whatever seat you could get. And the movie starts with one of the heroes, this wizard Gandalf the Grey, who's fighting a powerful demon. And Gandalf dies. And Gandalf is resurrected. And he's resurrected Gandalf the White. The imagery is everywhere. His mission is to save Middle Earth. And in the last battle of the movie, there's an army of men and elves led by Aragorn and uh, some of the other heroes, Theoden and Gimli, and uh, Gimli's the dwarf, and Legolas, who was an elf, and they become overwhelmed by an evil army of Urukai at this valley fortress called Helm's Deep. And when all hope is lost, and they clearly lost the battle, and there was only a remnant remaining. The remaining warriors decide to ride out, ride down this, down this trail towards the enemy, just going out in a blaze of glory. That's how they thought they would meet their end. But as they go, as they ride out, here's the scene. At that moment, the heavens open, the sun rises, and Gandalf the White shows up with an army, and he's on a white horse. And of course, he completely obliterates the enemy. Will you make it? Will you overcome? If Christ is your king, then see the victorious king and see the victorious battle. Now, an angel in our text calls the birds of the air to get ready to come eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and horses and all men, both slave and free, both small and great. Now, we just heard last week about the marriage supper, another feast of the lamb. It's found in verse 9. And now we read about a second great feast. Those who are redeemed through faith in Christ, the lamb of God, they're invited to one great meal with God. And anyone not aligned with Jesus, they are invited to this meal. So Pastor Chris got to talk about the marriage supper of the lamb. I get to talk about this meal. And this meal, if you're not aligned with Jesus, you are the meal. That's literally what it says. The Battle of Armageddon, and as we come towards the close of our 
message in scripture today, the battle of Armageddon, it's talked about in chapter 16. We finally come to it here in these verses. And what shocks me is, I mean, this, this book of God was written over hundreds of years. It's a pretty long book. There's a lot of descriptions and letters and words and truth that God has for it within it. And yet when we come to the end, you'd expect finally we have the Christ against the beast, the Trinity against the false Trinity. And you'd expect just like a movie to have this long epic scene. And yet we come to the end and we get five verses. That's it. It's over before it even begins. The beast and the false prophet, they're captured first. Remember, so much of the world was saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it and will never be overcome? Well, now now we know Jesus. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. They are removed from the world and eternally separated from God. Two of the three members of the false trinity are captured. And the third, Satan, he will join them after the millennium, according to chapter 20, verse 10. The kings and their armies, everybody that bought into the deception, are slain by the sword of Christ's mouth. What's that mean? All he does is speak, and it's over. That's all that's necessary. And the birds were gorged with their flesh. Their final destination is with their king. All those who align themselves with the world, with this false trinity, with the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, that's where they'll spend eternity, with the false trinity. There is no power struggle between good and evil, just a decisive victory by a victorious king. And if you notice back in 14, it says, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, followed Jesus on a white horses. So those who are of faith, who have gone before, are with Christ, part of his army, and they're not dressed for battle because they're not there to fight. They're dressed for victory. Why? Because the whole thing's up to him. It's not up to them. That means it's not up to you. And it's not up to me. So will you make it? We know that Jesus will defeat God's enemies. Will you overcome? If Jesus is your king, then you already have and you will. That's where it goes. So we're left with one simple question as we close today. Very simple question right now. Right now at this point in history, which side are you on? That's one of the reasons why John wrote this. It was to encourage those who are in Christ. It's also to confront those who are not. And there's nothing politically correct about John's writing in the book of Revelation. It's very simple. You are either aligned with God through faith in Jesus Christ, submitting your life to him, understanding that your rebellion and sin caused separation. You are either aligned with God through faith in Jesus, then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, or you are aligned with the false trinity. There is no gray. Every single person in this room this morning, if Jesus were returned during this moment in time, would be aligned with one of these two. And so my question for you is, are you aligned with Christ? And if you aren't, I hope you choose him today. It might not look like 
we're gaining victory, but he's already won. His cross and his resurrection prove it. So I'm gonna pray for us so that we might leave this place hopeful. And so as we pray, if you have not received Christ, you'll have the opportunity to do so right now. And once I'm finished praying, we're gonna dismiss for the morning and we can leave this place in the victory of Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for this vision of Jesus that's painted so beautifully for us that we can say when we come to this letter, Jesus is gonna win. And that means we win through faith. Father, I pray that if there be any here in this room or watching online who have not yet submitted their lives to him, even now knowing that through your spirit, you're convicting them that they're aligned with the false trinity they've bought into the world, that even in these moments, they would have the courage to pray to you, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my rebellion. I choose faith in you the victorious king. I submit my life to you. I give my life to you, the Lord of lords and king of kings, that I might be with you, standing with you for eternity. I choose you. And Father, for every single person who has prayed that prayer this morning or before, we can leave this place today, regardless of the storms that are around us, understanding that you are king and victorious and with us. So we leave in triumph. We haven't realized all of it yet, but we've realized enough. Thank you for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.